Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday, and I am here today with Bill Arsenault. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I should apologize. I sometimes pronounce your last name Ledette. <laughs> you know, my family cannot agree on which pronunciation is correct, and I never correct anyone. So uh, that's totally fine. Well, hey, you know, the same thing with my last name, Arsenault. I get some people, like when I call customer service over the phone, they go, uh, Mr. Arsenix? Arsenic? <laughs> It's kind of like um, that last name. Uh, I don't mean to compare it to another culture, but N G U Y E N. You know, like it's it's when, but some people go uh, Nagugan. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> another Louisiana specific thing too, because we have like a huge Vietnamese population here. Yes, yes, we do. And I there was one movie from the film festival I wanted to see more than most others, but I didn't get to catch. By uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, Glenn Petrie. He uh, helped with a film called Mary, Queen of Vietnam. You know, we talked to him directly over email because we reviewed his movie, uh, Belazar the Cajun. Yeah, I just got that on DVD, yeah. We reviewed that as a movie of the month, and he w- he reached out. Uh, I guess he gets, like, Google like results for his name. Uh, and he was like, hey, thank you for, you know, reviewing this movie I made 30 years ago. And he was very nice and talked to us for a little bit about it. He's very cool. He's a very cool dude. I, I've, I've talked to him over the phone before. He's, he's very – the first time I talked to him on the – actually, the only time I've talked to him over the phone, um, I was working with the Louisiana Film Channel trying to see if I can get some of his movies uh, on the app. And he called I, – I think I messaged him, like, uh, apologies. I'm just very persistent, you know, about – emailing people and stuff and he i call him up and the first thing he says before i say anything was i like persistence (laughs) i was like oh well thank you i will say i'm very impressed in general by how plugged in you are with all new orleans film culture like i feel like you have your tendrils everywhere you're one of the few (laughs) people i know in the city who actually gets paid it may be the only person i know who gets paid to review movies oh barely Um, very tough these days barely get paid and it's usually not even that much you know i mean i I, i'm appreciative so much of the people that do choose to pay me uh or that i've convinced to pay me but it's really not that much really it's just me mike scott and will cavillo left uh which is a shame because i can remember when i like years ago like maybe two or three years after i started blogging uh i wanted to start the new orleans film critics association uh, and I got almost everyone together at this coffee shop by AMC Elmwood, and we had this really good meeting and everything, but nothing came of it. I was trying to get people to be different roles, you know, like who's going to set up the website, who's going to be the president, who's going to, you know, that kind of stuff. And everyone was like, eh, you know, so we couldn't really come up to an agreement. Um, but now it's it's almost like I was at a press screening the other day here in Covington, where I live. Uh, at the Regal, we were uh, watching Belfast, and it was just me and Mike Scott, uh, of formerly of the Times Picayune. Now he kind of freelances with them, and and we were like, yeah, it's just the two of us now, basically. I mean, Will Cavillo still does some stuff for the Gambit, uh, but that's roughly it. I mean, we're we're the only ones left for the Southeastern Film Critics Association in Louisiana, and uh, it was kind of a bummer. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, great. How am I supposed to enjoy this Kenneth Branagh film now? <laughs> I mean, we're just lowly amateur film bloggers over here. So to even have a freelance, you know, journalist in our midst is uh, is high praise. It's been a long time since I've talked to you as well. Like you were on this podcast early on when I was still figuring out what I was doing. 
You were very gracious with your time then. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, shoot, man, my time is always. I'm always <laughs> available for anyone, and uh, that I think you introduced me to uh, uh, some weird beach movie. It was a horror movie where the 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 monster was a bacteria. Yeah, we watched the flesh eaters. The flesh eaters, yeah, and the, the the villain was a mad scientist, but he was using this bacteria that was coming to the shore as like this radioactive material or bacteria living organism. I don't remember exactly, but it was it was it was pretty uh pretty grody. I, I remember, and I was yeah, very for that era, it's very gnarly gore effects. Yeah, exactly. So I was really I was like, man, you guys, you know help me discover something that was like, where have you been all my life? <laughs> I, I would at least hope that we our enthusiasm uh, is good for that. Uh, if you ever do get the uh, film critics, uh, like any kind of like local, even like film nerd club going down here, I, I have enthusiasm and free time for that uh, because there really isn't much of a local film culture, I don't feel like. I mean, New Orleans Film Society, who we'll be talking about for most of the episode today, like they do a lot of great screenings and organization, but I don't know. It doesn't feel like Austin or Portland or New York or places where there's like screenings you go to where you see the same film nerds all the time or anything like that. There uh, there used to be a little bit. There was Time Code NOLA. There was um, Shotgun Cinema for the, for a while. Uh, yeah. There, was, there, there were a couple groups, you know, and then, of course, from those groups – you had the moviegoers who you would recognize at each of these screenings. Like the Britannia would do midnight showings, and I think sometimes they still do, although they've been renovating their uh, uptown theater, uh, which is like mind-boggling to me that they have two theaters they have now. It's not just the neighborhood one. It's the, the Canal Place one. I was so excited about that uh, when they announced that. Uh, but uh, but you would see the regulars at these, these uh, places. You just start recognizing faces. And sometimes when you're waiting in line, you kind of talk, you know, it's, it's stuff like that, that I, that I like and kind of miss. Uh, although I, I do believe there are some apps, uh, that are helping out at least with worldwide critics. Like when they're, when we're attending virtual festivals in this COVID era, uh, Nightstream utilized this, uh, this app or software, I think it's called Gather, uh, where it's weird. It's almost like, it's not like Second Life. But you do kind of have these movable avatars. It looks like almost like Final Fantasy, like the Game Boy era of that. Yeah, game. yeah. It's like this lobby, or it can be at any other setting, and you just kind of waltz around and hang out with people. And and I think sometimes your webcam can be on, or it doesn't have to be. I don't know. I never took advantage of it. I was I was too nervous. Like, which is funny because, you know, I'm doing a virtual thing. I should be very very lively, very free. I don't have, I don't have the uh, worry of attending an in-person screening where I kind of have to put on my best self. You know, I can wear pajamas. I could do whatever. And here I am like not wanting to (laughs) meet people virtually. It is kind of a hard culture to get going. I think because it is a very solitary hobby. Yeah. Like you are a nerd whose favorite activity is to sit in the dark and be quiet and focus your attention on someone else talking on a screen. (laughs) So like, of course, you know, we aren't going to be the most talkative people when we do get in a physical space together, but I don't know. I I miss running into you at um, Elmwood for like a random screening of like unfriended two or something, you know, like we used to like see each other out in the wild sometimes. And I miss that a lot. That was always fun. I I do miss that indeed. Uh, But I do like wearing masks in public. 
Oh yeah, for sure. So at, at the very least, <laughs> you know, there's some, I don't want to say there's any good in, in all this, but that added level of fashion is something I I had been waiting for. <laughs> so that's fine. Well, um, today we are talking about the New Orleans Film Festival. Uh, I think you said you were like freelance, um, actually like covering it for a local publication, correct? Yeah, actually the article I've been texting with uh, Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief. Last year I did uh, a couple pieces for the film festival uh, that happened last year that was mostly virtual, but I think, I believe there were at least one or two in-person screenings. He actually kind of reminded me there may have been a few. Yeah, I went to Undina outside, like at the, you know. Oh, at the, at the broadside, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. I didn't get to go to anything because, uh, you know, COVID fears and everything. But but I loved the virtual festival that year. I thought it was great programming. Usually it is great programming. But uh, no, uh, this year, Bayou Brief as well. And the article just went up like a few minutes ago. Oh, it's, awesome. Uh, two features and two shorts. I will link that in the show notes. Yeah, uh, so those are the movies I guess I'll be talking about, plus one additional one that we both And saw. usually I get your movie reviews emailed to me directly from Movie Going with Bill. BillArsenault.com, the Substack newsletter. Yeah, Movie Going with Bill. Uh, sign up for it, guys, if you uh, get the time to check it out. It's really awesome inbox reading, I feel, or inbox intrusion. But uh, it's movie reviews, so it should be very welcome. And I think like this show, you have a very adventurous um, palette. Like you are looking for um, a lot of like handmade, low budget movies with big ideas. I think we share that uh, mentality a lot of the time. So I discover a lot of new movies I've never heard of through your newsletter, which is great. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I just saw uh, Landlocked, a movie that barely has any coverage out there it's a festival movie that's still kind of going around it was shot mostly on vhs some regular digital it's kind of like this memory timescape using super vhs as a way to kind of see memories it's really wild and weird it's the kind of stuff i live for uh i I believe i wrote a review of that so you know uh anyone listening to this go peep my review and uh wait urgently for that film to come out it's a very dark film it's a very experiential film because this is a complicated thing to describe it's a complicated just world to really describe to someone that this you know body dysmorphia and eating disorder bulimia mental illness and so i kind of felt that verbally you know, it's not necessarily like spoken about in dialogue, but I wanted it to feel like you're kind of trapped in that illness. So I think that's what it feels like. It's very visceral is maybe the word I would describe it. Well, speaking of low budget kind of stuff, uh, we did both happen to see a regional New Orleans horror film at uh, New Orleans Film Fest this year. Actually, I got uh, your review emailed to me months before it appeared at New Orleans Film Fest because you caught it at Nightstream, right? Yeah, I caught it during Nightstream, which is an all-virtual film festival that's kind of... It actually technically is a New Orleans film festival in a way because... because of the Overlook? It, yeah, because it utilizes the Overlook, which is going to do in-person again next year. But um, it brought together these different genre festivals, and this year, uh, this year I noticed Shapeless. And I thought to myself, you know... You know What's this? You know, and I noticed one name that I recognized, and that was Natalie Kingston. She's a local cinematographer. She's great 
absolutely at her craft. She did. Uh, she shot the film Lost by You, which I highly recommend everyone watch. I believe it's on Tubi right now, but I could be wrong on that. She actually used my VHS camera for the opening shot of uh, that film, which goes to show you that uh, sometimes you can keep trash and it can become a treasure. <laughs> I'm always looking for horror films at New Orleans Film Fest every year, yeah. and I feel like they're few and far between. <laughs> Something I noticed a pattern that didn't really occur to me till this one was that all the ones I've seen are all about eating disorders. Uh, there was Swallow a couple years ago, and um, they did the screening of Are We Not Cats on the IMAX screen at the aquarium. Oh, no. It's like body horror about Pika, and it was like huge. <laughs> it was kind of amazing. They, they really did Are We Not Cats on the IMAX screen? Uh, yeah, it was IMAX? probably like my favorite thing i've ever oh seen at the Orleans film fest because it was so gross i had that on, i have that on my shutter queue i don't have shutter anymore but it was in my queue and i've been putting it off because it just seems so like i have to be in the right mindset almost sometimes i just dive right in but that one really kind of worried me beforehand i was like eh, i'm gonna watch sallow instead right. as a Something palate lighter. cleanser <laughs> you know i'm gonna watch that <laughs> But no, uh, bo- wow, body horror, huh? Uh, eating disorder. That's that's a very specific, you know, sub-sub-genre. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's like a conscious programming choice or just happenstance, because uh, Shapeless definitely fits in that same pattern. Well, there are no coincidences. Right, right. Some, <laughs> someone's pulling the strings. Um, in this case, it's a, uh, a dive bar jazz singer in New Orleans who's like trying to earn her way up the ranks, and it's difficult because the city is full of jazz singers who want to be famous. Yes. And um, in her private time, she slinks away. Like whenever she's not singing on stage, she doesn't want to go out for drinks. She doesn't want to hang out mostly because she is triggered by people eating and drinking around her um, because she has an eating disorder. And over the course of the movie, the more isolated she becomes. Anytime she catches a glimpse of herself in the mirror, you start to see her dysmorphia with her body represented in these like Cronenbergian growths. Like she grows like extra orifices or fingers or just lumps. Oh, right. And then just gradually she just becomes more and more disgusted by herself and the movie becomes more and more upsetting. I don't know that there's much of a narrative trajectory to it besides that. I'd say generally my experience this year was that everything I saw at the festival had an unexpectedly like laid back kind of like unrushed tone to it, um, which was odd in a body horror film yeah a lot of times body horror films have a resol has kind of more of a satisfying resolution where it's like okay book is closed this is the story you know that was the story this is how it ended uh that's fine it's not as open end you know this wasn't as open-ended or no this was open-ended i'm sorry i'm tripping over my words here uh no shapeless i i mean it, it, it's like you're, you're watching this downward spiral uh of this of this young woman and she's kind of as she's eating food she's eating away at herself uh at the same time you know she she looks gaunt in a couple scenes you know in fact actually most of the movie she's a little gaunt uh the actress is kelly murtaugh i think she did a great performance here yeah i agree she she has these little ticks these little anxiety ticks where she's kind of like butzing around with her fingernails specifically the the around the edges of her fingernails, the skin, almost trying to peel it off a little bit every time she gets anxious or she sees a snack or something, you know, and uh, and she has these these ways about hiding 
this addiction, this this obsession, this this disease. You know, uh, like at her job, like there was something she did at her job that really, like, did she, I might be mistaken. Did she pull some food out of the garbage at one point? Yeah, I think so. She's uh, she keeps fixating anytime she sees food. Like she stops listening to whoever's talking. I mean, just like can't. So like there being a snack machine at her job is triggering. Or yeah, like uh, you know, food hanging out on the top of the trash, like that episode of Seinfeld where he sees the eclair on the magazine. Like she can't think about anything else uh, until she has the chance to be alone with it. That's that's. Nice. I was thinking you mentioned Seinfeld. I was thinking uh, Rob Schneider and the Animal. I don't know <laughs> I don't why I've seen that. That's a, it's not a good movie, <laughs> but he he takes a, a food out of like it's some fried chicken out of his uh, boss, who's the sheriff. Uh, he's a cop. He pulls it out of the garbage, and the sheriff Ed Asner is like, "Oh, don't worry, son. I've eaten food out of the garbage too." And then he just walks away. <laughs> you know, but that was totally different movie. Uh, yeah, she did something with the vending machine. Did she break it open, or was she just no? She was taking the money that would that people were because she worked at a laundromat or some kind of um, right. Uh, no, it was uh, a dry cleaning dry cleaning uh, factory uh, or warehouse, whatever. It was a very big. Uh, place and she would steal the the change and just use it to buy almost everything in the vending machine. And just pig out, you know. Not to say yeah. that's just a, a phrase, of course, but uh, she would just gorge on and binge and, and everything. And uh, that that stuff I found more disturbing than the body horror stuff, which I didn't feel. It's not like it didn't play into the movie. It just didn't. It just wasn't as prominent. Every, it, it would come up and it would be disgusting. But it, to me, it, it could have used a little more of that, maybe, if it wanted to lean into the body horror. Instead, it kind of leaned into domestic horror. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, th- this was more like like a very personal kind of horror where... Yeah, her isolation and, you know, the fact that, like, there's this kind of slimy club owner who, like, preys on her being friendless and alone... Um, and kind of like woos her away from her like social circle, and the the longer she's alone, the worse she looks to herself in the mirror. Like that stuff is a lot more pronounced than the mutations, which don't really have a logical escalation to them. Like it's just kind of random. Like one time there's a mouth on the side of her mouth, and one time there's like fingers on her back, but they don't like get worse in any kind of like clear progression or anything. They just kind of happen. Whenever she kept there's a glimpse of herself. Right, and it's always an illusion. It's never actually something that develops within that world. It's not like in Videodrome right. where where uh, James Woods' hand actually starts to become a gun. It's not right. like he's imagining that. That's actually happening to him. So <laughs> it's not like something like that. Where, or, or in The Fly, of course, where he's actually turning into a mutated fly and then eventually a mutated fly teleportation machine. Uh, man, talk about a messed up movie. Uh, a great messed up movie. Uh, Shapeless... I mean, Video is one of my absolute favorites. Oh, that too. Yeah, oh, man. But uh, Shapeless, I mean, we can't compare it to those films, but I would say that in terms of body horror, this is like body horror light. You know, it's yeah, not... Yeah, I'd agree. It's not nearly as strong in that, but it is strong in performance and in visual. Uh, I really dug the um, the choices that Natalie Kingston and uh, the director, who I, I believe this is her feature film debut, uh, Samantha Aldana, but them both as a team, they had like these, I don't want to say, were they Dutch angles or was it just, it's like the camera was off kilter a couple times and 
in a lot of scenes, the main character uh, would be uh, Ivy, I believe is her name. She'd be framed in one corner or one side of the of uh, the shot, and then on the other side would be whatever object she's you know going to focus on in a second. And at first, I was trying to figure out: is this stylistic, or what does this mean? And then, I, as the movie progressed, it was like the more oblong and awkward her life is and becomes, the photography kind of matches. Yeah, it's framed almost like she's drugged or like having a dream or something and not actually like existing in the physical world. Right. It's, it's like she's not grounded. You know, she's right. or she is, but she's not walking on it right. You know, it's the ground is very shaky and unsteady. It's uh, it's very fantastical in that kind of way. I think the sound design does a lot there too. Um, just in the scenes of people eating around her, it's so gross. <laughs> like, uh, I think we can all agree that uh, people are disgusting. The, bo- yeah, the body exactly. is disgusting, and people eating, no matter how aware you may be of, you know, no matter how perfect you are eating something, you're not. Someone is noticing spittle. Someone is noticing crumbs and your tongue coming out to catch things. I mean, as a person with OCD myself, I mean, I, I, that stuff is frightening to me. It's not gross. It's frightening to think that someone will see me eating and go, ew. And I can't help it, but it's, it is kind of scary. So I can kind of appreciate some of that going on. Uh, I can also appreciate the scene where they're uh, playing a, her band supposed to be playing a uh what is it a it's a it's a wedding reception and (laughs) what she shows up late to it and she's not dressed properly for it she's dressed like she just woke up and (laughs) she's like okay guys one two three and they're just like uh maybe you should take a step back (laughs) maybe you should you should go chill sit down you know have some water we got this you know and uh, she 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 belts out a song and it's very awkward and makes everyone uncomfortable and then she goes inside, and what does she do? She takes a chunk of the wedding cake, the reception wedding cake, and runs away with it. And uh, I was like, oh, no, don't do it, Ivy. Don't do it. And she did it. I was like, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah, there's no like good ending possible to this movie, really. If, if she is actually changing like her body in any way, she's like doing unreversible damage to her vocal cords by vomiting so often. That was part of it. Yeah, that she actually went to the doctor in the movie or some clinician and they said your voice is going to be lost or you're not going to be able to sing and uh, because of the damage. So no matter what, there's no good ending where like she becomes like the jazz singer she always wanted to be or anything like that. It just kind of like spirals out and gets worse and worse. Um, yeah. But in a way that's not very – it's not pushing towards like any kind of like narrative conclusion or anything. It, it just, you just kind of watch her sink further and further into herself, and it's all sad. Yeah, and then you kind of imagine this is going to go even further past the movie. You know, like right. there's no ending ending where like she dies or she turns into an animal or, or something insane like that. It, it, it's, just, it's just sad because you know the cycle is going to keep going. It's not even – the cycle isn't even complete yet. It's still – in the cycle and yeah it's just not going to be good for anyone specifically her and that's that's a a damn shame you know uh i rated this movie three and a half out of five stars i felt it was very honest about its portrayal of this disease i thought it was very uh honest in terms of the character 
I think the performance uh, really struck at something that w- that made it's made that character very true to the audience to me. You know, like seeing it, seeing her represented. I I I felt like um, not that I knew this person, but I felt like I could know this person. And this person, and I definitely identified with a lot of this person's struggles, uh, at least in terms of the anxiety uh, aspect. And it was definitely very creative, but again going to the body horror stuff that it was billed as, and that could have just been a marketing thing. I don't know. But uh, it, it was definitely light on traditional horror. It was really more, like I said, domestic horror. Like, her just being very sad and her life going downhill very quickly. And congratulations on the film. And how does it feel to have an audience now watching it? Wild. Because uh, I've never, when I was editing the film, I did it during the pandemic. So I literally never saw it with anyone once in a room before it was premiered. So um, it's like a real gift. I, I never take for granted anyways making smaller films. You, the audience is the only way your film comes to life. It's like a relationship with the audience. And then, But now, after these two years, these really everyone's had a really tough two years right Right. so it's quite miraculous and i feel all the more sort of like grateful and indebted to like film festivals like mill valley for like making it possible well uh as i mentioned before i um have an article that's just been released just been published with the bayou brief uh the title is two shorts two features the 2021 new orleans film festival review review uh review being the traditional one way of that film reviewers say it or write it, review being R-E-V-U-E. I picked four films, two shorts, two features, as I said in the headline. They are 17-Year Locust, which is the first short film. Second short film is Blue Country. The first feature is a documentary, 100 Years from Mississippi. And the final is... uh, I actually switched it up, Brandon. I I I was going to do... This other, this other film, I can't remember the name of it. The Coherence of Birds, I think. Uh, but I, I chose The Laughing Man. It's kind of a... No, it is. It is a documentary, but I would say it's more of a diary. But, um... No, 17-Year Locust. Okay. This is a film by Logan LeBlanc, who uh, won a grant from the Create Louisiana French Film Culture uh, grant. He won that money to make this film. And now that the film has been completed, it's out there, and uh, I guess I'm going to talk about it. Uh, the film is about a, a Haitian immigrant, a uh, young black man, who uh, mostly speaks French, and he has moved to Louisiana to uh, begin his family, you know, to, to prepare for his family to come over. Uh, he, I believe is in the film, is working as a, a home nurse. You know, he goes to people's homes and takes care of them for however many hours and so on and so forth. Uh, when the movie begins, he's walking down the street in, I, I want to say it's Lafayette. It's definitely uh, the Acadiana region of Louisiana, southwest. And he's listening to basically like uh, English on tape, although I guess tape is... Not the right word for it anymore. Uh, English on MP3, perhaps. English on cloud. And mm-hmm. and so he's, you know, going through it all, uh, going through the motions as he's walking past uh, Spanish moss and the, the beautiful 
uh, neighborhoods and uh, landscapes. He's not walking down uh, the sidewalk of Walmart or anything like that. You know, he's it's kind of more uh, <laughs> more uh, idyllic, you know, than that. At one point, he's trying to play guitar in a park, but he is told to move along instead because they don't allow that kind of music or any kind of music in the park. It disturbs people. Uh, so there's this immediate clash of culture. He's already trying to learn the language or the prominent language of um, the country. Although you could say there is no one language. Of course there isn't, you know. But he's trying to learn what people speak. And on top of that, he's whatever he's used to, he's being told he can't really do anymore or he has to kind of adjust his ways. The movie is is very much uh, that. It's very much culture clash and remembering or maintaining who you were in uh, either a previous life or years ago, who, what culture you originally had, and letting allowing that to remain part of you even as you change. The, the story really gets going when he goes over to an uh, elderly woman's house to take care of her. He's a home nurse. And they strike it off, like they hit, they, they become fast friends. She speaks uh, French, just like him, so they, they kind of bond over that. And she gives him this really personal kind of story about her upbringing and how the nuns at, at school would, would kind of, you know, punish you if you talked French, because at the time they were, you know, kind of switching things up from uh, that to English and the loss of that culture, how it's kind of dwindling. Very few places in Louisiana speak French anymore. That is very true. You know, she's telling all this to him, and he's being very respectful, listening, and letting it kind of soak in. The short film is, like I said, it's really about uh, him wanting to assimilate, but also not really being sure what his place would be if he does assimilate. And eventually hopefully coming to terms with that uh and whatever he needs to do to to live here really there's this really great representation of this with uh the use of the uh american flag that he has over his bed uh it's hanging over his bed but it's not particular it's like it's a almost like an albatross he, he has it almost by not force but by uh what's what's the right word for it uh, duty? <laughs> like obligation. Obligation, thank you. He's, he feels like it's an obligation <laughs> to uh, to have this flag. That's just what everybody has over their bed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, absolutely. Everyone has the American flag over their bed. Um, <laughs> you, you don't? Uh, but he Honestly, does. Honestly, as a teenager, I did. I had an upside down one because I was really into Rage Against the Machine at the time. Oh, that's that's pretty <laughs> cool. That that's that's such a, a little badass. <laughs> that, that's the symbol of that's the symbol of distress. Distress, uh, yeah. I, I had a poster of uh, all the best picture winners up to that point, like a <laughs> like a collage, you know, from the Academy because they had, at the time they did like 100 years, 100 best winners, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, which they still do every couple years, and so the poster's now moot. But um, no, the movie itself, uh, it's not a tearjerker by any means, especially when he you know, reaches the resolution and kind of... I don't want to spoil anything, of course, but uh, he does 
you know, learn a lot from this woman and her story, specifically about how a locust will, um, you know, live underground for 17 years or so, and then, you know, it comes out, only has a short while to live before kind of changing or dying, you know, and um, while he feels that's a little sad, he she's like, no, that's actually kind of sweet in a way, kind of beautiful. So he's uh, he's kind of struck by that kind of stuff, you know. It's 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 a very poetic short film. I uh, I don't want to say it's particularly groundbreaking in any way. Not that a film has to be, of course. Uh, but I I gave this uh, in my review a three out of five, mostly because of a a minor minor ish nitpick. I felt like the the screenplay wasn't as strong as it could have been. Uh, the performances by the two main characters, the two main actors, are uh, are excellent. Of course, uh, they do justice to the words. They uh, perform them rather well. They uh, uh, hit it off in conversation very well. Uh, I could have listened to those two talk French for hours, really, and uh, how they just looked at each other for a good while, and how he kind of held her hand and was very generous and respectful of her and how she was very i guess ex a little bit excitable or as excitable as a sick elderly woman can be when she's speaking with another person who kind of gets her at, at the same time i didn't feel as though the the words that were probably originally envisioned and were eventually written on paper uh, i didn't feel like they kind of matched the power of the behavior and the attitude of the movie uh, if that means anything to people, uh, I'm speaking probably over a lot of people's heads right now, but, um, that, that made sense to me and that's how I ended up rating it. But, uh, ultimately the movie is a good reflection of, uh, uh, reflection back at us and kind of like a reflection in the mirror kind of thing. Most movies I, I believe should be that. And indeed this movie, uh, does that, you know, from a, cultural aspect it really kind of shows us uh at least in this region it's very regional specific but uh i think it also does have a good lesson or two for for anyone coming to this country or anyone that was born in this country and uh, wanting to move on in their lives and feeling as though they're kind of lost in some way i feel like that touches on a few things that new orleans film society does really well too like just like topics for films wise like the most I ever see short films, locally produced films, and because of the French Film Festival, like French language films, is mostly through them and through their two flagship festivals. Uh, so it sounds like that's pretty, I don't want to say standard, but pretty like typical programming for them. Typical, yes. It's not humdrum. This is not a humdrum film. It's not been there, done that. Despite my nitpick about the writing, it's not that. Uh, but it is uh, it, it is typical, I suppose. But, you know, so what? This is Louisiana, and... Uh... No, I meant, I, I, I meant that as like... <laughs> no, it's okay. No, I, I, <laughs> I didn't say... mean that as an insult. <laughs> <laughs> when I say so what, I wasn't throwing it back at you. I was kind of... That was my film <laughs> critic side coming at it, and kind of going, but so what, people? Why not be like that? You know, that's, that's how I would write it, probably. But yeah, no, I mean, th there's nothing wrong with uh, a Louisiana festival having a Louisiana section. Cajun, uh, not Cajun, I'm sorry. Cinema on the Bayou, a Lafayette or Acadiana film festival uh, uh, run by, uh, I believe it's uh, 
Pat Muir, uh, local filmmaker, he um, they, they they showcase a lot of French language films from uh, here, from Canada, or from France even. But they also showcase a lot of locally made stuff too. And of course, you're going to get stuff. You know, it's kind of like um, write what you know. I mean, who else is going to do it? Like, yeah, and who else is going to somebody do it? To right. do it. You know, uh, well, I mean, you need someone to do it, but at the same time, you know, you, you got people like uh, Ben Zeitlin gets a lot of crap, I think, for being, he's hes not really from here. He's an outsider. You know, he made Beasts of the Southern Wild, but that's not his story to tell. You know, I'm like, well, <laughs> I, can't, I guess I can't argue with that. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, I like the movie, so I mean, I'm sorry. I yeah, I liked I liked that too. I haven't seen Wendy yet, which I don't know. I, I I'm sure it's fine, but I just haven't seen it yet. But uh, what was the filmmaker you just said runs the other festival? Uh, uh, Pat Mir. Pat Pat Mir. Did he make that movie um, Cajun Rice in the '90s? I feel like I've watched something from him recently. I want to say yes. He's done a lot of documentaries. Um, that one was actually like a a local drama about like this like rice farmer in Cajun country who like. Was felt guilty about moving away to the city and like comes back home. It's it's been a while since I've seen it, but that that, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's a very nice guy. I I, I talk, I've talked to him a couple times over the phone, and he uh, he had asked me, "Do you know any Cajun French?" And I said, "The only thing my dad ever taught me in Cajun French, I am Cajun, uh, Cajun Creole, but the only thing my dad ever taught me in Cajun French was was uh, and." Please forgive me, listeners, if you know already what this is and you're offended. I hope you're not offended. I'm just saying this for comedy. A non-piquetois. And on the other end of the phone, he goes, oh, you just told me uh, F you. <laughs> and I was like, that's all he, that's all my dad taught me. You know, I'm sorry. You know, A useful phrase in any language. It, it is, actually, yeah. Speaking of um, local filmmaking, speaking of very regional filmmaking and uh, I suppose Cajun culture. Uh, we have a short film named Blue Country. Uh, this film takes place uh, in the bayou, but I'm not exactly sure which one. I think it's just kind of like one of those it's Louisiana, just roll with it kind of things. Uh, it's definitely in the bayou for sure somewhere or in a bayou because it's a house that's that's on risers, you know? And... Uh, they're preparing for a hurricane. It's the guy. There's only one person that lives in this home. It's the actor Dane Rhodes, who starred in Lost Bayou, another Bayou film. Okay, uh, that was a great movie. That was a great performance in that movie. This is another great performance. The Blue Country. Okay, there's a hurricane coming, and uh, these two neighbors, a uh, young African American man and uh, an older Cajun gentleman, played by Dane Rhodes. Uh, they are kind of doing what they can to make sure the Dane's house is as prepared as possible. Uh, sometime before the hurricane officially makes landfall, a mysterious woman appears wounded uh, at his doorstep. She had to, I guess, climb up the, the stairs to the, you know, because uh, it's a risen house. It's off the ground. And with her in her jacket, she's not just bleeding. She has, like, just cash upon cash, you know, the kind that's bundled together. And it's very <laughs> clear that she has either stolen this directly from a bank or she stole it from someone else. Nevertheless, this presents an interesting scenario. Uh, he discovers her wounds are pretty deep. She most likely won't make it the night. 
And when his neighbor comes back to see what's going on, there's this major dilemma of uh, morality. You know, what do we do? Do we... Dane wants to take the money and or just let her pass and then take the money. And he's explaining, like, look, I've never seen that amount of money before. I've never really had an opportunity like this. He's trying to say it without really saying it. He doesn't want to put out there that he's that kind of a person, but he does want to convince his neighbor friend that maybe we should just let nature take its course. And, of course, the neighbor is like, uh, no, <laughs> we got to get her to a hospital. Uh, so, oh, my God, this movie is, is really, really tense. There's this wonderful scene when the hurricane is at its highest peak, you know, uh, of power, of strength. Uh, the electricity's out. And they're all the three of them are trying to get some rest, and uh, the character played by Dane Rhodes, he's uh, he's got a candle with him, and he's slow. He's trying to blow it out. You know, he blows on it once or twice. It doesn't work. The candle's still lit. Then finally, he just snuffs it out with his finger. And I thought to myself, "Wow, that was a really good moment because it represented." All right, I tried explaining this to the to this guy. I, I took this woman in, I looked at her, you know, I did what I could to kind of convince these people maybe we should take the money and run. Now, I'll snuff it out. I got to take control, you know. And, um, you know, again, I won't go into spoilers, but uh, things do, of course, take a turn and some twists. And it's it's re it was a really surprising film to watch. Uh, the, the level of... Um, careful intensity is what i would call it it's not a quick burner it's not like you know it goes from um seven to ten immediately it's like it ramps up slowly and then boom really quickly it just goes it explodes and um you know i love that kind of stuff i love it when a movie is very very much like a uh, a lit fuse and time is running out and we're going to come to a to a conflict the, the the apex of the conflict very qu quickly it's coming up where do you stand you know that's what it is it's uh is i don't want to call it good versus evil necessarily but there is method to the madness behind dane rhodes's character that he kind of adds on uh there, there's something about his wife there's something about his life there's something about um you know, I mean, he gets into some of it, but he's also he also kind of carries all this experience with him. Uh, he wears it on his face. He wears it. He it's weighing down on him. He he walks with it. Uh, the way he performs this character, even if his character is a little stoic and kind of, you know, grounded and sure of himself, there's still like an uh, uh something not quite well going on. And I don't mean that in a. Uh, oh, he's disturbed kind of way. I mean that more than a, he's been through some stuff in his life and he just wants it to get better kind of way. So there are some, it plays around a little bit with ambiguity and uh, uh, vagueness a little bit and where we stand uh, watching all this happen. Uh, so ultimately I gave it a four out of five. Excellent, challenging, and tragic. And that kind of gradual patience too sounds kind of on par with like everything I saw at the festival. Like everything kind of had that like not really pushing the drama and the tension immediately and kind of like making you stew in it. I, I, like I said earlier about the 
eating disorder horrors I've been watching at New Orleans Film Fest over the years. I don't know if that's a conscious programming choice or just like something that's just out there in the like, you know, general subconscious right now. But it, it felt like everything was very quiet and patient until it was intense. Yeah, maybe that's a maybe that's a reaction. Maybe finally the whole um, COVID genre is kind of coming up to light and we're getting a lot of maybe I'm just throwing this out there. Uh, and, and now that's coming to light, coming up from, uh, to the surface, maybe that whole quiet, patient, you know, we're forced to be quiet. We're forced to be patient. We're kind of trapped together in some ways. Kind of filmmaking is, is coming up a little bit more more quickly and, and in more abundance, you know. Uh, definitely a lot of filmmakers have been making movies like that lately, uh, whether it's uh, over Zoom, whether it's just them in a in an apartment, you know, during lockdown. Yeah, just being alone is going to make you more quiet and isolated. Obviously, like <laughs> yeah. the fewer people you're working with and bouncing ideas off of, it's going to be a little more subdued. Yeah, I watched a movie by by a friend of mine, uh, The Secret Society for Slow Romance, which was shot during the New York lockdowns, and it's it's literally just two people, a man and a woman, sitting at a table talking about movies and talking about ideas to solve problems in the world and there really isn't a plot other than the two of them talking about just those two topics and at first i and i told him on on this video chat we had i was like at first i couldn't under i couldn't get it i couldn't wrap myself around this i was like what am i watching i was almost pulling my hair out 30 minutes in and but then by that point i was like no, duh, this is exactly what living in, in during a lockdown is like in a big city with two artists, two heavy thinkers living together. You know, they're going to talk about the same stuff over and over again. Their life is going to essentially repeat. Things are going to be repetitive for them over the next couple months, you know, and of course they're going to just keep talking like this, you know. And I thought, this is brilliant. This is exactly what COVID's <laughs> like. So I, I was like, I get it now, man. And he was like, well, thank you. That's kind of what I was going for. <laughs> I was like, was it? Or did I just kind of land on it? <laughs> I, was, I was messing with him. But <laughs> uh, Okay, so the next film, um, first uh, of the two documentaries, the two features, uh, 100 Years from Mississippi, which I feel is near mandatory to watch. This, this is a five out of five uh, right here. This is about a woman who's, uh, at the time of the movie that the movie was made, I believe she was 107 or 108 years old, uh, Mamie Kirkland, a uh, African-American woman who was born in 1908. Uh, she did eventually pass away in 2019, but uh, this movie takes place, uh, I believe, goodness, uh, 2016, 2017? But she goes over her entire life, most of her life story, specifically the time where she and her family were forced out of Mississippi because, out of fear that her father was about to get lynched. Uh, so they had to leave in quite a hurry in 1915 uh, to, I forget exactly where in the north, but they did have to move quite uh, far away. Uh, but the movie opens with this, with this wonderful montage of... Uh, footage with her voiceover where she goes over this century over a century worth of history saying i've i've seen a lot of great things i've seen a lot of hateful things i've experienced this as i've experienced that but here i am 
uh, a mother, a grandmother, a great grandmother, you know, I'm, and, and I'm still standing, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, she is quite the character in this. I mean, she is incredibly articulate, quick-witted. She's on her feet as much as possible. She is still an Avon saleswoman, even, in the movie. She's, she's, and she's not using the computer. She's using the, 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 the magazines, the paperwork, you know. And she's still making phone calls, you know, Avon calling, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> and uh, her son, who made the movie, tracks down this information regarding the uh, the attempted lynching on her father and discovers that the man, there was another man that was going to be lynched uh, alongside him, was eventually lynched and hung in, uh, I believe it was Ellisville, Mississippi. And uh, so he try, he does whatever he can to track down all these old newspapers and someone who's a relative who may have known something and where this location of the lynching was in that area. And he asked his mother a couple times, do you want to come down to Mississippi? Because she hasn't been there since she left in, in uh, 19, what did, I, what did I say before? 1916, I believe. Uh, yeah. You said it was filmed in 2016. So no, no, I meant the year she left. Uh, 1915 was, was the year that she had, was forced out of Mississippi. She had escaped Mississippi. Yeah, I was doing the math with the title. I was just adding 100 years onto that. <laughs> okay, so maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it was 2015, 2016. I, I want to say it was 2016. But um, he eventually does convince her, and she she states a couple times, like, I'm not afraid to go down to Mississippi, but she definitely suggests that maybe it, it won't mean anything if she were to go. Like, what's that going to do? You know, uh, She does make the trip, and uh, there were so many great images from that trip that uh, are kind of burned in my brain. Like, she, they're driving by homes, and you, there's still Confederate flags, which I'm, of course, used to. I, I've We live in Louisiana. I mean, we've been to some neighborhoods here and there and some areas, and there are, in fact, people that still have those bumper stickers and those flags and... Old Jefferson is the part of the city that I go to where I'm like, oh, okay, I forgot this was a thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, well, I lived in Harahan uh, for a while, and there were, in fact, still some some sections that were like that. And a, a filmmaking friend of mine told me, like, you know, they used to call this place Hera Clan. I am not shocked by that. I was like, really? And I felt, I felt guilty. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm living here then. I feel like there's some level of privilege that I, I have from living here, like... Like, because in Harahan, I hardly ever saw any crime. I hardly ever was a victim of anything. I was never a victim of anything. I lived very well. You know, the rent was a little high, but other than that, it was pretty comfortable. And knowing the history of that area, I was, I was like, oh, God, you know, it's still white privilege. It's still this. It's still that. And, you know, it was, it was nuts. But, um, you know, this movie kind of does tread into uncomfortable territory, but being uncomfortable is a, can be a very good thing because you're confronting, you know, essentially demons from uh, your past or really demons of the present, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, in this movie, they're not so much demons as they are um, just facets of humanity. You know, people are capable of all sorts of things, great and horrible. And, you know, she's lived through all this. There's this one part where she says, the worst president I lived under was Hoover. But this new guy, Trump, takes the cake. You know, she was she said something along those lines where Trump isn't technically the worst guy, but she's like, 
that guy is like, <laughs> that guy's out there, you know, that guy comes close. Uh, she said something along <laughs> those lines. And, and, you know, when she was asked about Black Lives Matter and when she was asked about the anti-protest towards that, the, you know, just, just everything happening from the civil rights movement to now, like when she was asked about that, she was like, the more things change, the more they stay the same, basically, you know? And, uh, and she was like, this doesn't surprise me. I've seen all this before. And I was kind of like, whoa, you know, it's, you're shocked. You're not shocked, but you're also very shocked at the same time. Like you live that long and what exactly has changed? Not very, I mean, not, not to say little has changed, but there's still that, you know, that uh, something underneath everything that's, that's still very much there. And, and it's very sad, but seeing her go through it all and recalling everything uh, was very healing, I felt, or could be very healing to a lot of people. I feel she 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 was very strong in it. She was very um like I said very articulate and had a great sense of humanity and and even a sense of humor somewhat. Not about you know lynchings or anything, but definitely when it came to more lighter elements in her life, you know, she she cracks some jokes here and there, but but she adds a, a level of grace even to the 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 worst parts of her life that really stuck with me. Uh, it's, it's an excellent movie, a wonderful in memoriam, and if it, if it comes back to, to town, I can't recommend it enough. It should be an immediate watch once it hits uh, locally again. I can definitely see how that would be the kind of perspective and personality you would want to preserve in a documentary. Like That may, immediately makes sense, even before you say that like a family member made the film. like Someone with that much experience and like perspective definitely something you want to record for posterity documenting that life was like a blessing in a way i mean to watch you know and uh it was it was really really wonderful to uh to get to experience uh that even if it was just a piece you know it was really nice uh so uh last movie i got to talk about is zach godshaw's the laughing man now uh zach godshaw is a, a filmmaker out of baton rouge he is also a, uh, I believe, a film professor. He teaches screenwriting and filmmaking at uh, LSU, I believe. And he's made movies like Lord Byron. What was the other one he made? He made another movie that's, that was set in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Um, something in low, low and so I'm, I have a hard memory about these things, but it was a movie about insurance adjusters. So basically, scum of the earth, preying on these these homes that were just destroyed in, in Katrina and determining how much money these people were due. And they're kind of deluded into thinking, oh, we're doing a good thing when really they're just like awful middlemen, you know? But uh, that, that movie was great too, you know? Um, he's very much a regional filmmaker. That, that's like his MO. I, I don't think he's made anything, uh, you know, narrative-wise or documentary-wise that's of a theme outside of the state. Uh, the Laughing Man is kind of a different type of film f- for him. Like, not different in terms of budget or in terms of DIY attitude. Uh, he wrote what I, what he called the Lord Byron Manifesto on a website called HammerToNail.com, where he basically went over what he learned making that movie, Lord Byron, which was made for only like a few thousand dollars, and 
he he goes over like independent filmmaking and the spirit of it all and it's really a wonderful read i I recommend people i love that kind of stuff yeah yeah it's wonderful to read he's just so passionate but uh this movie is a little different i wasn't really expecting it to be like it was he apparently tried shooting a short some kind of film i don't know if it was a short i don't know if it was like a teaser for something bigger but um the movie within the movie uh stars uh, a man by the name of thomas williamson who uh that footage was shot like with actual film i want to say 16 millimeter maybe 35 i'm not sure it was definitely more grainy than uh than you would expect but it, but it had that film look he uh he's playing a trumpet and he's out in the woods and he's just you know blowing into it and laughing hysterically and that's kind of how the movie begins the the bigger movie the la- the main movie that we're talking about here uh, from there, we switch to camcorder footage and cell phone footage or smartphone footage of the man behind that character, the real Thomas Williamson, who uh, is an individual who is suffering from bipolar disorder. Uh, he is throughout the movie, which only takes place, I, I believe, over the course of two years. Uh, it goes over his life, but it takes place primarily within uh, the span of two years. He, um, he's in and out of hospitals, not just, you know, regular emergency rooms, but, you know, mental facility, mental hospitals and uh, behavioral facilities and all that. You know, he has a lot of problems. Uh, and But one of his main qualities is that he's got this, this wonderful uh, kind of sense of, uh, not so much sense of humor, more of sense of life. Like, he's always greeting people, he's always shaking hands, he's always saying something nice, a nice, kind gesture to someone, and he's got this really infectious laugh. At first, when you see the laugh and you hear the laugh, it almost sounds forced. Almost. It's it, it, it's almost annoying. It's very deep and a little crackly. But as the movie progresses, you become used to it, and you kind of just realize that's just who he is. He just laughs. Uh, whether that's to mask something, some past trauma, whether that's just his response to things, it's really kind of up in the air, but he does laugh a lot, and that kind of brings out smiles in other people. The movie's very personal. Uh, Zach is like... Zach Godshaw, the director, he's he's also a character in the movie in the sense that he's he's not a caregiver, but he uh, for for Thomas, but he is kind of a point person between Thomas and Thomas's family, uh, like his parents or rather his dad. I think his uh, a big part of the movie is that his mother uh, died in a car accident that he was in, seated in uh, when he was five years old. I think that kind of caused a lot of his uh, emotional problems later on in life. But um, uh, Zach in the movie, is, he's just documenting everything. And uh, he gives Thomas a camera and lets him record things too and, and all that. Um, there are a few directorial, like cinematic moments in the film where we see Thomas just walking down the sidewalk or walking across the grass in front of kind of half-abandoned mini-malls. You know, the kind where the parking lot is cracked and grass is starting to come back up. We see that often. And then over that footage, we have uh, voicemails from family members or from Thomas himself or from hospital workers, you know, just kind of juxtaposing what we're seeing. You know, Thomas trying to 
just moving, you know, just progressing forward. But is he really progressing, or is he kind of stuck in a unfortunate cycle in this uh, uh, really poor system of um, social welfare and social, uh, you know, just taking care of people in this country? Uh, there's a really stunning and spectacular sequence at the very end. Uh, and again, this goes back to DIY kind of stuff. Like, I think this was just captured by happenstance, really. But maybe he saw it and took advantage of it, the director, Zach Gottschall. Uh, he drops uh, Thomas off at another hospital in New Orleans. I believe it's University Medical. And uh, as he's exiting the hospital and he's driving, he sees under an overpass... Uh, which everyone has seen in New Orleans, rows and rows of homeless people in tents. And the footage is just, it's like he's just holding the camera out the window, and he's just capturing it as he's driving by. And having just seen Thomas go back into a hospital, and this footage being right next to a hospital, the, 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 there's these rows of tents, it's, it, it says a lot about the state of, healthcare in this country and the state of um, how we treat poor people and how we treat mentally ill people and people with disabilities. And I don't want to say it's like wagging its finger at us, but it, it is definitely showcasing it for what it a is. A lot of people are a few unexpected health bills away from being homeless. Exactly. And, and there's also little, very little to no information out there uh, outreach wise like, uh, there might be programs to help people, but do those people know of it? You know, how, how are they going to find out? Do they go to the library? Do they go, you, you know what I mean? The best they can they can figure is, I'll just stand on a street corner and uh, ask for money. And uh, there might actually be programs out there to help them. They might not be able to help that much, but you never know. You know, I've often asked that question before uh, of, of family and friends. Like, do people know that these programs exist? And, it's like you know, are there brochures? Are there TV commercials? Like, what's what's the advertising? What how do they how do they know? Uh, I guess volunteers. I'm not sure. Yeah, hopefully people are actually physically going out to those tent encampments and you know speaking to that population. There but... was a movie I saw uh, <laughs> to bring it back to something else uh, within this. You know, uh, there was a documentary uh, called. Where are you when the when the world's on fire? I believe is what it's called. It's like a hybrid documentary, but it follows different people in New Orleans. One of those people is the leader of the new Black Panthers, which is not actually affiliated with the official Black Panthers. As a matter of fact, they're kind of considered to be almost like a. Um, they're kind of recognized by the Southern Poverty Law Center as like not a very good organization, very militaristic, like a fringe and, group. But they are shown in the film going to these homeless encampments and these, these tents and they're giving out water, they're giving out food and they're giving out literature. That literature is mostly geared towards come over to our place and see what we can offer you further. But, uh, nevertheless, they're offering some things, you know, and I don't know if that's taking advantage of people or if that's just a different form of help, whatever you want to call it. But, um, there are people, at the very least, you know, going up to them, uh, people living in te- uh, living out of tents, and the laughing man, you know, just it, it just really hits home because I think a lot of families know that one person in their family or a, a close friend of the family who just they don't know what to do with, they don't know how to help, 
you know, health-wise or uh, living arrangement-wise or whatever, you know, and they're just getting older and older by the by the minute, and time is <laughs> of the essence here to help them, you know, and, you know, you're you're trying to live your own life. How do you help someone else whose life is also theirs to live and is off the rails uh, more so? I don't want to say this is a sad film, <laughs> despite everything I've said, but it is kind of a sad film. Even though the movie has a wonderful epilogue, I'll say that after the hospital scene where he's driving by the people living in tents, we have footage from Thomas that he shot that reminded me so much of Grizzly Man, the Warner Herzog film, and Timothy Treadwell shooting just random B-roll of uh, like a fox that came near his tent and is running around and he goes and plays with it, you know? Like this wonderful footage that uh, Zach Gottschall put it at the end of the movie to kind of say, you know, Thomas is still Thomas. You know, he's going to keep on going in whatever way, even if the problem still persists of how do we take care of him as friends, as family, as a community, you know? Uh, so it's it's an interesting movie. It's, it's very complex. It's very um, uh, of the moment. Uh, definitely of the moment. And uh, I, I gave it a full 5 out of 5 as well. It rivals the documentary uh, that came out a couple years ago called Big Charity. That was about the, the fall of Charity Hospital uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. But also about the doctors and nurses who came out of that as heroes for what they did. And um, both movies have their own way of showing what what's right and what's wrong, specifically what's wrong with American healthcare. But uh, there's also that little bit of hope there, you know, with both. And uh, I, I think that's both, both movies are uh, also just like 100 years from Mississippi, uh, almost mandatory viewing. You know, I can't recommend any more highly than that. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I wish I had like more of a personal drive to watch. Um, and usually, like for film festivals, I would make more time for documentaries and for shorts packages. Yeah, where you normally see that kind of like tougher thematic material. But like this year, I, I was basically just by myself. Like I didn't have any festival buddies this time, like steering me in those directions. So like. That's okay. I watched stuff that was like a little easier on my mind and heart. <laughs> I watched like that's mostly narrative film, films. Film festivals, uh, the best ones are very diverse and, uh, and and have so much to offer all kinds of people. You know, I mean, this year we had, you know, The Laughing Man, which was, uh, you know, which I just explained what it was about. And alongside it, you had uh, Red Rocket, which is about, a, I guess, the next porn star, right? Yeah, that movie is about a lot of things. It's about um, a lot of things, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a feel bad movie. Um, I'll probably wrap up with that one just so we really leave on a sour note. Um, <laughs> I did happen to catch one documentary though, at, as far like the virtual screenings go. I saw um, Socks on Fire, uh, oh. which was a kind of documentary narrative hybrid, kind of like a, a couple of movies you were just talking about, where it's not entirely unstaged. But it is about true events. It, it's this poet, Bo McGuire, made this film about his own family. And he narrates the whole thing as if he's doing like spoken word poetry kind of narration. 
Um, and it's about his own family's infighting after his grandmother's death. He's from a small town in Alabama and he is a queer artist and, um, that has caused some tension on some sides of his family, um, especially with his homophobic aunt and um, him to form closer relationships with gay members in his immediate family who weren't out when he was a kid, which includes his drag queen uncle. Um, oh, wow. This all comes to a head because his grandmother did not leave a will. So the homophobic aunt and the drag queen uncle are fighting over who gets to live in her house. The aunt has enough money to live on her own. The uncle is basically homeless. So without that house, he has nowhere to go. But his sister has like so much hatred for him and his lifestyle, quote unquote, not, you know, who he is, like as if it's a choice um, Mm -hmm. that she basically wants would rather him see him homeless than live in their childhood home. That's just sitting empty. Otherwise, that sounds really tough. In kind of the same way we were just talking about the homeless situation in The Laughing Man. But it's done in this really kind of sardonically campy way. Like, the uncle's drag queen friends and other friends of the filmmaker start recreating this, like, family infighting as drag routines. Like the obviously the homophobic aunt does not agree to be on camera to depict how awful she's being. So like the uncle's friends turn her into a drag character and like reenact her like awful, you know, hatred as this like campy drag review and turn it into like a cabaret act. It kind of adds a little levity to the, uh, yeah. To the yeah. It's, it's not like you never get over how cruel she's being, but it definitely like points out the absurdity of her position in the argument in a way that's like very fun, even though the situation is fucked. Um, <laughs> that's, that's very cute. I like that. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, he also does like other visual touches so that, um, you know, it's, it's not a movie where a lot happens, but there'll be like him sort of remembering childhood glimpses of his grandmother or like his childhood love of Reba McIntyre before he knew he was gay. Um, And uh, he'll be narrating these memories while posing these um, kind of like still lifes. Like there'll be like his grandmother's coffee cup as if she's holding it in the kitchen. It'll be like sort of suspended in the air and like the steam will be coming out of the cup, even though there's no one in the frame. Almost like her ghost is like holding the, the coffee mug while they're, you know, sharing their breakfast it's a very loose kind of like movie that you'll only see at a film festival. I saw it at home, but here apparently they did a big to do at the broadside where they had like actual drag queens do like an opening show. And then the uncle did his own like drag routine after the fact to like wrap it all up. That's nice. Um, and I, I kind of That's wish nice. I had gone to that event. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. Uh, anytime there's an, any little bit of an excuse to put on a, uh, burlesque or a drag routine or something new orleans takes advantage of that yeah that's one thing i really miss from covid um shutting everything down is there used to be these like eight dollar drag shows like a five minute walk from my house and they'd be over by like 9 p.m Uh, and it was my perfect night out and i would do it like every other monday whenever they used to have them um (laughs) so i'm like a little I got a little bit of FOMO that I uh, I went to a different film screening the night that this one screened instead, and I watched it alone on my couch. Oh. So I, I missed a little bit of the pageantry. Well, that's too bad, but but at least you got to catch it, you know. And and the film festival they they did a wonderful thing this year where they had uh, introduction 
and Q&A, usually, with, with most of the films. Uh, so hopefully they did that with Socks on Fire. They did. Um, they had a you know pre-reel where they talked about how the movie's been screening mostly at Southern Film Festivals. Like, it's a very Alabama-specific movie. Um, not only does like every single person who appears on screen say Roll Tide at some point, but also um, I remember after Katrina, I visited a friend of mine who's from Alabama. Um, you know, he was living, he went back there in exile after the storm and I, I went and stayed with him for a week. And one of his favorite things to do was to listen to this like swap meet radio show where like local kooks would call in and like, They'd be like, oh, I have a broken lawnmower that's missing a blade and it only works if you like stand on your left foot and like toggle this little switch on the right side. I'll trade it in for $5 or anything of equal value. <laughs> and then someone else would call in um, to like haggle through the radio show. Like that was his favorite pastime was to listen to this like local call-in show that was like a swap meet. And I've only ever heard that in Alabama. And this movie included like recreations of, if not that exact swap meet radio show, then like another local version of that from somewhere else in Alabama. Um, and it like really dragged me back to that place in time. Wonderful. So it's, it's a very like Southern specific film on top of like all the drag stuff. People, I think some audiences out there, I don't, I don't know who, but we'll see or hear stuff like that as we just as you've just described and think oh man that's awesome i gotta watch it but when they watch it they'll probably or listen to it they'll probably get a reaction from it like this is trashy you know this is <laughs> this is uh this is like tiger king i get to watch or listen to people that are that are less than me when really i mean you can enjoy this stuff as being genuine you know like uh people talking over swap meet stuff i mean maybe it's maybe it's totally quirky and weird but <laughs> That's just life for them, you know, and that's totally fine. You know, that's 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 excellent. Actually, it's kind of, there's something kind of beautiful in that. I always like when there are characters and like real life people that have access to broadcast media that you would not, not normally see or hear on like wide broadcast. Like that is always fascinating to me. So like DIY filmmaking or like cable access or yeah. those like radio call in shows like I love hearing specific persona that you would not, you know, see in like a professional production. Cause there are like financial blockades, like keeping those people from broadcasting themselves so that they are like strange to the ear and to the eye, but uh, they're around like they're real people. Oh. You just don't get to see or hear from them because it costs money to make movies and to be on TV. Oh, totally. Totally. That, that kind of takes me back to my uh, early college days when YouTube was just becoming a thing. And then we discovered the spirit of truth videos which was the public access of this uh, public... It was a public access television preacher, I guess, who spent all of his time with callers just cussing them out and saying, you got to read the scriptures. <laughs> and the, ca the whole time he's on a green screen and the background's very fuzzy and the camera is zooming in, zooming out very wildly. And none of it makes any sense. It's completely bonkers and strange. And and people were just just eating it up. Like I gotta watch this over and over again. I gotta sleep to this. Gotta make this my ringtone. Socks on Fire does have those kinds of like big characters, those like big Southern personalities. Specifically, he goes out of his way to highlight the women in his small Alabama town that like shaped him as a person when he was a kid. He like kind of gathers them all in a field for a big photo shoot at like one of the more like 
emotional parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. But mostly, like, I don't know, it reminded me of Sorted Lives. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It was like a gay play that became a movie and then a sitcom. Oh. Um, it's very funny, like, sarcastic, but really dark and very gay. Like, <laughs> just like really, like, fiercely <laughs> queer content. And, like, um, Beth Grant was in the movie. She's very funny in that. Okay. So, like, super thick accents, really big personalities, big hair, usually revolving around a hair salon. It's, like, where most of the, like, central dramatic action is. Um, except, you know, in this case, this is a real person's life and his family. So, like, there's this very genuine heartfelt drama at the center where it's like, I need to make sure my uncle has a place to live before I can leave this town and go back to, you know, whatever city he moved to to, like, work on art for a living. So yeah, like a really earnest version of Sorted Lives. <laughs> it's kind of like my bigger takeaway from this one. That sounds excellent. I can't that, see. I I confused Socks on Fire with another movie because of the screen capture. Uh, the other movie was a short film called. Uh, uh, it was like Chip and Kevin make a film or make a movie, and the screen capture of it that that they used the feature image was was a sock puppet. So <laughs> I was like, oh, is that Socks on Fire? You know, because I only saw the screen image. I didn't see the, the title underneath. And it wasn't that. It was just a like a goofy movie about making movies during COVID. Well, I will say the very first image in the documentary is his grandmother's socks on a clothing line on fire. Because he's oh. like, what do you do with, you know, this? like she didn't have a living will. So he's like, what do you do with someone's property? They don't have a will. And it's like socks. Like you can't like donate those. You can't use them yourselves. So he's like, I guess I'll get drunk and light them on fire. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how, that's how it starts. And kind of you know a tip off to how the humor is going to be throughout it. Like very dark, but kind of heartfelt. It's true. You can't donate socks or underwear. There is no right. used underwear bin you can just go to. But uh, <laughs> nor would you want to go to. But that hasn't stopped people from trying. Oh, yeah, I'm sure every day Goodwill just throws away tons of socks that someone left behind um, in the donation bins. (laughs) Well, the uh, only other virtual screening I went to was this movie Homebody, which actually ended up being my favorite of the virtual selections I saw. Okay. It has a very 1980s comedy premise, um, but it's handled in a way that never would have been (laughs) achieved in the 80s when this would have been more of a gross-out sex comedy. Um, it is a cross-gender body swap. Uh, there's a nine-year-old boy who's like kind of questioning the boundaries of his gender and is obsessed with his adult woman babysitter, who's played by Kobe Minifee, yeah. who I've, I've seen in a couple things. She was in that um, that Charlie Kaufman movie on Netflix last year. Um, oh, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Yes, yes, she was in that. In like a very small role. Was she in The Boys? The Amazon superhero? Yes, yes, she's on that show as well. Okay. Um, Which I haven't seen, but I I did look up her credits after this because she puts in a fantastic performance as both this like adult woman and um, eventually this nine-year-old boy who has taken over her body. Oh. Um, He uh, discovers a YouTube channel that teaches him free spirit meditation and... uh, Leaves his own body comatose, floats as this like free spirit, and takes over this like twenty somethings body, and just lives as her for an afternoon. Does she take over his body, or is it just 
See, that's the part. Like, I feel like in the 80s, they would have swapped bodies. Instead, um, he just goes comatose, and she goes into the um, uh, sunken place. Like, oh, it's very much sunken place rules from Get Out, where she just, like, goes into his to the back of her subconscious while he pilots the ship. She's also a doula and is supposed to be delivering her first baby that day. Um, so she has to emerge from the sunken place to coach him through delivering a child. And this is a nine-year-old who um, does not know the basic parts of like human anatomy yet. Right. Um, <laughs> so he's like mortified. So the, the movie works on like two fronts. Like you're both kind of rooting for this kid to like try out a different gender for a day and like see how he feels and like actually enjoy being outside with like people looking at his exterior body for the first time in his life and then also really just tense hoping that he does not fuck up her life (laughs) like he can like do real damage to her reputation and to other people who depend on her um if he like does anything too kooky while he's like piloting the ship (laughs) it for for like a little 80 minute comedy that's like at a film festival i had heard nothing about it it just happened to have a premise that caught my eye i was very impressed by the emotional response it, it got out of me and the fact that Colby Minifee was just so funny in this like kind of slapstick, like what would a nine-year-old in a 20-something-year-old's body look like and act like? Like she she really nails it. I, I believed it the whole time. I kept having to remind myself, um, you know, like that is an actor portraying a different person and not like actually a little kid. Like she she really got the mannerisms down. She had a role in uh, Netflix's Jessica Jones, at least in the first season. And I, what I remember distinctively about her was she had this very aggressive approach to her. And I recognized it again in The Boys, uh, which she is in in, in both uh, the first and second season. And um, it, it's weird. There's like It's like her body is constantly tense and maybe gritting her teeth sometimes. And she's just ready to lash out at someone. That's just that's just how I, you know, envision her, uh, based off of her uh, body language, you know. And here she gets to play a goofy child who doesn't really know what situations they're walking into. So like this sounds like it's against type if that's n- normally how she's cast. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, here she's just sort of like bumbling around, like trying to um, appear adults, but like can't hide <laughs> the fact that they're just a child. They're like really curious about everything. Kind of like that. Uh... That Bojack Horseman character, the one who's like three boys stacked up on top of each other, and they're that is exactly the performance. Yes, (laughs) that's exactly what she's doing. John, adult man or something, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) something like that. So normally, I would like mostly look for stuff like that. I would normally go to kind of no budget movies without distribution, but honestly, I have not been able to afford to go to the movie theater. Lately, and it's only been recently that I've felt comfortable with the city's vaccination rates. Yeah. And the fact that this festival, you know, made sure that everyone who showed up showed either a proof of vaccination or a recent COVID test showing that they're negative. So, like, I actually felt comfortable going to the movie theater a few times. I mean, I took full advantage. I went to three sort of like, they call them the spotlight films. Yeah. Um, normally, I would avoid these screenings because, like, on a normal year, these movies would be out in the theater anyway in like two months and I would just see them 
along with everyone else. Like I didn't really see a point in like going early when I could use that time to knock out all these like smaller films that I would never have a chance to see otherwise. Um, but this year, you know, things are just different. <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> and uh, actually, the first one I want to talk about, I wouldn't be able to see in any other context. Um, it's the new Apichapong Virasethakul, his new movie Memoria. Is it Thai filmmaker? Oh yes, most yes. famous for Uncle Boon Me. Yeah, I actually just got my awards uh, screener DVD for that, so I'll be watching that very soon. Okay, first of all, that's hilarious because yeah, I know the, uh, they, people pointed the that neon out thing because the movie, <laughs> if people don't know this, is they're strictly saying we're only going to keep this in theaters. That's the only way you're going to be able to watch this. And when the screener DVDs started coming out for award season, critics were like. What the hell? <laughs> That's so <laughs> you hypocritical. <lied>. You liars. <laughs> and actually, that one did not have a live intro from a programmer. They like played a you know pre-recorded one as if you were watching it at your house. And when the programmer for the festival explained Neon's release strategy for this, like one screen in one city at a time, like so. It's a very exclusive, like traveling roadshow thing. It kind of, kind of has like a William Castle gimmickry to it, which was part of the reason I went to go see the movie, just because I, I was amused by that. But when they, when they announced that on the intro video, half the audience laughed, <laughs> like yes. they were hearing it for the first time and thought it was ridiculous. Um, and I was actually kind of proud of that reaction because <laughs> I think it is a little ridiculous. I mean, it, it's a little idealistic too. You know, it's kind of like, oh, they're doing that, but at the same time, I mean. Come on, who who are we kidding here? You know, they're <laughs> now <laughs> you're gonna do this now. <laughs> I'm also kind of embarrassed that I was drawn in by that because I knew the movie was gonna play, so I I checked out Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, yeah, uh, which is like his most famous movie, and honestly, it didn't really do much for me, and I still went to see this because it felt like an event because of that William Castle gimmickry. And I had kind of the same reaction. Like, I wasn't really won over by it. Okay. If these movies are very, like, meditative and patient as a whole, like, this is the one that really pushes that to an absurd degree. Um, but that's just what a Pitchapong does. Like, that's his whole deal. So, like, I, I knew better. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if you have, like, a, uh, you know, affinity for slow cinema, like, those things were, like a single image will remain still on screen for like five minutes and like the slightest flutter of movement in the corner is supposed to like wow you because you've been staring at a still image. That's what he does. Like, so I, I should have known that this wasn't going to be for me, but I still gave it a shot. There was, there was a movie that came out. It was the last movie by this director, uh, Kiristami. Uh, it's called 24 frames. And I was fortunate enough to, to see it kind of early. And uh, I wasn't, really sure what it was going to be about and then the movie explains it's like the following are um basically 24 frames we're going to show you a frame for like five minutes or something and maybe 10 minutes i don't know i don't remember but it was for this extended period of time you're going to see a frame each segment and there might be some movement there might be no movement but you're going to hear sounds and stuff like that at first, I'm thinking like, oh god, what am I getting myself into? Because I had never seen a Kurosami film before, so I didn't know, you know? I was going into this completely ignorant, and when I watched the film, I came out of it like, like just discovering Terrence Malick for the first time. You know, I felt like, wow, this was awesome. 
you know this is this is this is the kind of stuff you know so really I, you're you're t you're talking you're telling me about memoria and I, i'm thinking to myself you're you're saying you know if you're into slow moving cinema you're going to love this you know you you didn't so much like you didn't hate it but you didn't get into it but but you're i'm hearing this and i'm like just like birdman i'm wiping my hands like in in anticipation you know, you know the rapper Birdman. He's like he's always doing that thing with his hands. And yeah, yeah. I'm doing that. Lips. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is my jam. <laughs> you know, if this is a deviation from what he normally does in any way, it's this is his first English language film that has you know a Western <laughs> movie star in it. Yeah, Tilda Swinton. Swinton. She's um in Colombia, I think visiting her ill sister is like her reason for being there. But while she's staying in Colombia, waiting for her sister to recover from this mysterious illness, um, she starts being haunted by this sound. This very thunderous drum sound keeps appearing inside of her head. And she, like, kind of sinks further and further. I don't want to say into madness, but, like, into a different plane of existence and... Um, relationship with the physical world around her as she investigates the source of the sound. Um, and it takes a very long time to discover the source. And then once you get there, you sit there for a very long time, uh, sort of dissecting what it means. I don't mind being challenged. And I knew that this was going to be challenging. I guess what I thought when I watched uncle boon me at home was like in the theater, I'll be more, you know, enraptured by this. I'll be like stuck in place and I won't be able to look away from it. You know, I'll be more like actually engaged with it. Mm -hmm. And then watching this in the theater, I was basically just begging for it to end for the final 30 minutes. Like, please let me leave. Because um, <laughs> I'll never walk out of the movie before the credits, but I really wanted to in this case. Yeah, I rarely, I've, I've rarely ever done that except maybe for Taken 2. I did that for, but I, I wasn't reviewing it. I was just there to waste time. And right. I just walked, I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, you reminded me of um, when I went to go see Grindhouse at the Britannia, which was my first Britannia screening that I ever went to. And when Death Proof came on, you know, I was into it. And then the second part of the movie hit and they were doing the diner scene where the camera's kind of swirling around everyone. And it's just the women talking. I was basically clawing at my um, chairs, my, my uh, armrests, just violently, just getting ticked off every minute that passed. You know, thinking to myself like, "Shut up, shut up, move on." You know, it was so excessive. The conversation it was so indulgent. I was like, "Just get it all over with. Get to the cars." Yeah, that programming choice to put like the fun explosive movie ahead of the like very talky patient one was very strange. Yeah, now over time I have gone to appreciate Death Proof more so, but that one By showing, itself. I was like, oh my <laughs> god, you know. <laughs> so I've been there. I've been there. Uh, the biggest like to do I saw was the uh, Orpheum screening for the new Mike Mills movie. Come on, come on. Mostly because Mike Mills was in attendance. Yeah. So they had like a whole red carpet thing for people to like pose in front of the like, you know, logos and, you know, there's like a Q&A after kind of with Mike Mills. Um, so it was like it was probably like the biggest like event screening at this year's festival, I think. Yeah. The other one I, I, I would imagine would be, at least for me, would have been Red Rocket. Problem is, though, that I think they showed that at AMC Elmwood, uh, not out yeah. of choice. I think that was a uh, 
a last minute decision because the Britannia wasn't going to be uh, finished renovating. And that reminded me, another reminder, it reminded me of uh, when Jack Reacher 2 had its um, uh, public premiere. It was also at AMC Elmwood, and Tom Cruise was there. And he was in front of the red carpet, quote unquote, which was just some red carpet and signage they put out front uh, in the parking lot. I was like, how pathetic is this? I remember going to Elmwood one time uh, to see it was during WrestleMania and they had John Cena to I was at that one. blockers. That was hilarious. That was a great, that was, a, that was, that was crazy, but that was a good screening. I thought, you know, I thought, I thought John Cena yeah. handled it all well. The movie was pretty funny. You know, it was, it was very nice, but it was funny because uh, uh, everyone was like, can we get an autograph? And he's like, uh, no. Or he only told that one kid he was going to give him because he 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 was impressed by um, people who were bold, you know, taking taking bold risks, you know, like oh, it took yeah. a lot of courage to to say that in front of everyone. And then this other guy, you know, they questioned him. He was like, "Can, can my wife get an autograph and take a picture with you?" He's like, "No." He <laughs> just moved on to the next question. He just looked very tired because WrestleMania. Oh was yeah, I mean, he had a busy day, week. Busy week. He was just like, "Yeah, no, I'm in this movie, and you know, we had a good time, you know." I loved that screening because it was all children, you know, because that's like most of his like wrestling fan base. And the movie but that movie is like a raunchy humor. R-rated comedy. <laughs> yeah. it, <laughs> it was, was great. It was a wonderful movie too. Really, it surprised me. It wasn't just the adults in the movie being raunchy or being confronted by raunchiness. The movie was focused almost all with the three girls in it too, and they yeah. were being excitable and raunchy and stuff. They were taking part in it, and uh, and that that I was like really surprised by that and i'm looking around him i see john cena he's like out of the corner of my eye and then i see little kids and i'm thinking like is this appropriate it's not appropriate <laughs> is it i mean yeah for cena, it made me laugh harder just the context <laughs> right. in a funny mood i was like i cannot believe i'm watching this next to 10 year olds uh <laughs> got yeah. a bigger laugh out of me because of that as cena gets a uh like a beer plugged up his butt or whatever like right what right. was that it was like a beer uh, like a beer bong yeah yeah beer bong yeah right so how was come on come on uh not as rowdy as that blocker screening um <laughs> i thought it was okay I, i'm a big mike mills fan from his last two features beginners and especially 20th century women yeah. where like those movies feel very intimate and small but like the further they dig into what they're about like the more microscopic it gets the more cosmic it gets like it it becomes this like bigger story about like you know women's journey as um a gender over the course of the 20th century and like what it means to be a, a good man in modern times and like what our insignificant place in the universe is and all these like really big giant concepts and then watching come on come on it's like really small and intimate by comparison the movie travels to four American cities. It, it goes from Detroit to Los Angeles, then New York City, and then finally to New Orleans. They saved the best for last. Honestly, I think that uh, Mike Mills would agree with you based on the context of his um, hyping up the crowd at that screening. Okay. <laughs> but uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays this like NPR-type radio host who's recording children in those cities and like asking them what they think the future is going to be like. And it, from what I could tell, these seem to be genuine interviews with like real life children, like unscripted, just Joaquin Phoenix pointing a microphone at them and saying, what, what is your vision of the future? Like, what do you think the future will be like when you're an adult? 
And I guess that's where the profound big ideas are supposed to be. But I didn't feel like the movie was really about that much. Like mostly it was about him babysitting his nephew um, and dragging his nephew to several of these American cities. Um, And they have a very uneasy relationship because he hasn't been around for most of his nephew's life. And it becomes one of those kind of standard road trip movies where like, a very precocious child drags a jaded sophisticate out of their like shell. And they like actually have like a meaningful connection by the end of the film, which, you know, not so bad. Like I, I like those movies and I found their relationship very charming, but I guess I've come to expect so much more from this filmmaker that when he delivered like a kind of like intimate road trip drama, I was, you know, I liked it, but I didn't love it. Um, but I was saying the uh, New Orleans stuff in the end, you can feel him falling in love with the city in real time. Like they stage like a walking parade uh, seemingly through the Treme and just the uh, sort of gushing of like the local hospitality of the city and celebration um, and exuberance. Uh, you You could sort of feel him coming under the city spell. It's like one of those things where like someone comes here for a Mardi Gras and you could tell they're going to be moving here in like two years. Like that was like the, uh, <laughs> that was like the dreaminess he had in his eyes when talking about uh, filming in new Orleans. Well, so. well, let me ask you, was the depiction of new Orleans, uh, to new Orleans, you know what I mean? Like, like they're, they, they weren't doing like Kville where it's like, let's have a red beans and rice party. You know what I mean? It wasn't anything like that where it was like too tacky or something. There's a little bit that, I chafed against the parade they staged does not feel as chaotic or natural as it could have. It's basically just a second line. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it, it felt a little stagey in a way that it's hard to capture that feeling on film anyway. And then I, I would say when he's interviewing the kids locally, he asked this like 10 year old, some question about Katrina and it's like that kid was not alive when Katrina happened. So I don't know why we steered the conversation there. Because it's associated now. It's forever associated. That that kid has lived through several hurricanes <laughs> since Katrina. <happened>. You're right. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I, there were a couple things where I was like, eh, I don't know. Like maybe if you're not from here, that stuff wouldn't really stick out to you. But I, and I try not to care that much about that. Like I try not to watch. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is like uh, Clint Eastwood in Tightrope, where he's like running in the quarter, and then he turns a corner, and all of a sudden he's at the graveyards and then at Canal Street. It's like, how'd you get down there? Like, I, I try not to like fixate on that kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of stuff um, doesn't bother me either, really. But um, right, but yeah, in this case, I don't know. If your movie's about authenticity and like mixing narrative and fiction, it's a little harder to ignore that kind of thing. Well, uh, it, it the way you described it, it almost sounds like a Jim Jarmusch movie. In some ways, uh, you know, that's that's not off base, and it is in that black and white casual style from Jarmusch, who I'm not really a fan of. So really, <laughs> that might be why. I'm, yeah, I like Down by Law, but otherwise, I'm not I'm not really a Jarmusch fan. Well, I, few people are, man. I mean, like I I just did it. Not that this is a big deal because tweeting is not a big deal. Tweeting is nothing. But uh, I'm on Twitter almost constantly. And I, I wrote a tweet about Bill Murray being in The Limits of Control, which was a kind of an obscure Jim Jarmusch movie, even among his catalog. And uh, I remember when that movie came out, 
a lot of people were like, this is this is too Jim Jarmuschian. Like, what the hell is this? You know, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's all right. It's about a, a hitman doing his job, and then he completes it. What's not to like? You know? <laughs> I generally buck against Gen Xers who have this, like, slacker attitude where it's like they have all the resources in the world, um, and then they do nothing with them. Okay. Like, his, like, way of, like, having every celebrity that you think is cool in coffee and cigarettes and then just giving them nothing to do, like, aggravates me actively. Okay. His, like, shrug, I don't really need to do anything to justify you giving me your attention, like, bugs me. I see. I see. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, especially now, because he's, he's a very prominent filmmaker. You know, he's very well known and, you know, his style is out there and everything, but... uh Definitely his early days. Probably in every indie filmmaker's early days, you can get away with stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. When he was like a no-wave filmmaker in like grimy 1980s New York City, it's a little more forgivable than when like he's a millionaire and hanging out with like Tilda Swinton and Adam Driver, you know? (laughs) It's like you could be doing anything you want right now. But I don't know. I I do see that sort of laid-back, unrushed approach and come on come on as well and like i said that's kind of like the sort of overall vibe i had with all these movies even red rocket from sean baker like i'm used to sean baker movies i mean i've only seen two before uh, florida project and tangerine yeah i'm used to those movies being very hyperactive and like these like constant spirals into chaos um and like basically even in tangerine like dragging you by the hair through los angeles um, and that music playing, like that rhythm, boom, 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 boom. Right. You know, and, and just, she's just dragging this this poor woman who's like probably in, in uh, prostitution slavery or something, and uh, you know, and or trafficking rather, and uh, and she's got like no shoes, and she's like, get off me, you know, that kind of thing, and uh, um, I still remember that very clearly, and uh. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got a way about him. He's got a very kinetic nature to his filmmaking. And in this one, it's actually, like, more of a feel-bad, like, hangout comedy. Like, it is <laughs> the same, like, kind of poverty line characters who are, like, just barely feeding them and housing themselves. And they're, like, very outsized personalities, a lot of, like, non-professional actors. But it's slower and like really makes you stew in the discomfort of both their, you know, financial desperation and also this like central slick character who is a fast talking con man uh, played by Simon Rex, who I believe was an MTV VJ briefly. And then like kind of an actor in the early two thousands and just hasn't been around since then. Yeah, this is like his big comeback. If I were Sean Baker, I would have cast Jesse Camp. <laughs> if you can find him. Yeah, he's hard to find. But I, I listen to his song almost all the time. I see see you <laughs> I, around. I remember see that. See you around. Yeah, that's, that's just me. That's my theme song. I have a much clearer memory of him than I do of Simon Rex. I'll tell you that. Yeah, definitely. Well, he was very distinct. I had to read the Wikipedia page for this actor. Um, everyone was like, oh, wow, it's amazing to see him again. I'm like, who is that? I have to go check back on his like credentials. Is it Kurt Loder? <laughs> yeah. uh, in this case, you know, he's, he's playing an ex-porn star who returns to his hometown in Texas to basically exploit every single person he can weasel his way back into their lives. 
and eventually he latches on to a local teenager who he tries to manipulate into moving back to Los Angeles with him so he can turn her into a porn star mm-hmm. so that he can leech off of her you know, beauty and talent and um, become rich again. This movie will piss a lot of people off because of that age gap. Like he is a man in his, I, I guess, late 30s or early 40s, and he has sex with a teenager through most of this film oh, um, no. and is like trying to convince her to go into pornography as a professional. But I, I definitely was on the um, depiction does not equal endorsement side of the audience where like okay. every single thing he says in this movie is despicable. And the fact that he's like charming and handsome and gets away with so much because of that is like sickening to your stomach and it's just like a really feel bad comedy because a lot of funny things do happen but you're following around this like awful protagonist the whole time um and because it is more of a hangout film you have to like really spend time with him as he like manipulates people and like sweet talks them into fucking up their lives to his benefit so it it's not as lovable as tangerine and the florida project where you have these characters who are also financially desperate but you're sort of like invited to love them for their vulgarity Uh, in this case he is just utterly despicable two characters it reminded me of um, robert pattinson in good time and matthew mcconaughey in the beach bum just like people who exploit the like slightest amount of charm they have to get away with way more than they should be allowed Uh, and it's like really grotesque and like fucked up and makes you feel bad while you're laughing yeah, I think that this, the, the the one thing I liked, I only saw the trailer, but um, I, I wanted to ask you about this too, was the relationship between him and the main character and um, I guess it's his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend. It seemed like throughout the trailer they were really building that up. There was like this immense tension, but there was also this immense chemistry between those two actors that was at least teased. Is there some of that going on here? There is a brief period where you see why they would have connected and like what they um, can build with each other if they were on equal footing. But literally every single thing he does is so manipulative that um, there's just no chance of anything good happening from any relationship. Like the big like cheering moment where you actually feel good about anything that's happening is when basically the entire community that he's um, scheming against comes together to yell, shut the fuck up at him because he just talks a mile a minute, the whole movie. And it's like constantly trying to one up people strategically, basically scrambling his way back up the ladder in this like small town to like be on top. He wants to be a big fish in a small pond again. And um, it, it feels really good when people are like, you need to go away and stop talking. <laughs> like We are very much done with you. You're a dirt bag. So I don't know. I, I can't find any sweetness or like uh, okay. you know, genuine connection sweet. there. A movie can be very sour. I mean, that's that's right. That's beautiful too. You know, it's like it's like that character in Clerks who's always like Snowball. That's beautiful, man. <laughs> that, that that same with this movie. It's, it's, that's beautiful, man. He is like a very thorny character, and I feel like. The discourse around this movie as it starts making its rounds on Twitter and stuff is going to be insufferable. So, like, I guess I'm glad that I watched this early because I could just watch it without any preformed opinions when I walked in. Um, Where, like, I feel like if I had seen this weeks after it had been in wide release and, like, already made the rounds through New York and Chicago and 
LA and like tr- finally trickle down here, which is usually how these things roll out. Um, I probably would have been sick of this movie before I even got to watch it. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, normally I don't see much value in watching something early because I'm not professionally reviewing it. So I have no reason to get a review out quickly. Yeah. So in this case, I was just happy to have like a clean slate walking in and like just feeling bad on the movie's terms um, instead of feeling bad for um, enjoying something that has a, you know, toxic reputation, which I expect will happen with this before the year wraps up. <laughs> That's me warning you about Twitter. <laughs> it's, oh, it's coming. You don't, you don't have to warn me about that, man. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> you know, I remember the, the, the in the Heights war that occurred earlier this year where people were like, uh, Oh, this is going to be a great film. And then it comes out. It, it's not Latino enough. And that's a right. whole different issue. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak to that. But then, but now that it's out again, like in um, streaming and all that, people are going, how come people weren't liking it as much? I'm like, you weren't right, around right. back then? Like, you didn't see all this stuff? You know, it wasn't really a war. I guess it was more like a, a scuffle. But but there have been so many of these these things that just wanted, that drive you crazy online where uh, these professional critics, you know, get together and, and they, they get mad at the the slightest uh, thing they think is offensive. Like there was this one uh, female critic who um, uh, said something along the lines of, you know, a movie that's over two hours has to earn the remaining time for her. Now that's just her opinion. But, uh, and I I felt it was fine, but, but then everyone else, you know, took to that and we're like, Oh, listen to this person. You know, she's like a movie has to be under two hours. And I'm thinking like, Man, I I wish for movies that are under two hours. Oh yeah, I miss the uh, Roger Corman double bills. You get two movies that are like seventy minutes a piece. I know we were just complaining about the programming of uh, Death Proof. Yeah, <laughs> so maybe right. That's uh, maybe a little hypocritical, but yeah, yeah. I really like long movies too, but length doesn't necessarily. I'm gonna catch myself before I make a bad joke, but uh, <laughs> length does not necessarily equal quality. <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> we were just talking about Red Rocket. You know, it's what you do with it. You associate know? people, associate it, and you'll get the joke. Well, um, we are going to be doing our like best of the year lists soon. I did not prepare you for this question because it just came off the top of my mind. But okay. uh, do you have any like recommendations for like stuff I absolutely should watch before I start making that list? Because this is the time of year where I start cramming those in. Yeah, let me pull up my letterbox right now because this, this helps me. Letterbox, it really does, uh, with uh, remembering stuff. <laughs> uh, let's see, my top five currently, and this isn't technically like in a specific order necessarily, but these are the ones that top five in terms of what I would list at a early on. You know, like if you had to force me into it into a corner, these would be my top five of the year. Okay, uh, five is Mitchell's versus the Machines. I really liked that. Yeah, it was very lovely. Yeah, it was really, it was really crazy. It was really good. Uh, Belfast, number four. Uh, Zola. Zola was my number one for the longest time, but now it's my number three. Uh, but th- that's still pretty good. I love Zola. I really like that too. Uh, that that definitely has that um, propulsive tangerine em- uh, energy we were just talking about. That like forward momentum where you're just like, I don't know what's going to happen yet next, and I'm terrified. Yes, uh, and yes. also laughing. And I love the filmmaker too. She did <laughs> Lemon, which was kind of an underrated yeah. film, but I, I thought that was hysterical. That's another sour feel bad comedy. As <laughs> yes, well. I love feel bad comedies. Number two is Bad Trip, the uh, Eric Andre oh, yeah. Jackass kind of movie. 
And for my number one is Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. It's a Japanese film uh, about it. That's all one take, and it's kind of like a time travel movie where basically you can see two minutes into the future with uh, this this he, some guy in a coffee shop figures this out off of his security camera. And his friends get together and they're like, oh my God, what the hell, what the heck's going on? You know, and they figure out a way to extend the two minutes by putting another screen in front of that screen (laughs) and another screen in front of that, you know, they extend it. And the whole thing is one take and you see the screens every couple minutes and, and things are repeated and stuff. And you wonder to yourself, how did they accomplish this? You know, uh, at the same time, it's this really sweet comedy. Uh, it's a very lovely picture, you know? Uh, other movies I would highly recommend for uh, catching up on. Uh, there's a documentary called All Light Everywhere. Yeah, that's hitting Hulu soon. Okay, good. Yeah, it's uh, surveillance cameras, body cameras, and the history of film, basically. Specifically, cinematography and the development of uh, motion cameras. From the guy who made Rat Film, right? Rat Film was great. Oh, I love Rat Film. Uh, but yes, from Theo Anthony, the same dude. Uh, the Outside Story, which actually did screen at the New Orleans Film Festival last year, but it's kind of also a movie for this year, too. Those things complicate me so much when a movie comes out one year, but also comes out the next year. I, I don't know. Um, another one I would recommend is another documentary that's kind of similar in style to All Light Everywhere. It's called You Can't Kill Meme, like an internet meme. I've only heard of that through your newsletter. Oh, okay. It's on my list of things to keep an eye on because of that. It's it's going to come out like uh, very soon. I think on the, the, the main distribution website, they have a running stream of their movies. And I think that's that's been added to it. Uh, it's, cool. it the, the website, I believe, is memory.is. So, you, you know, you should be able to catch it there. And then there's a censor. If you have, I think you've seen censor, though, right? Yeah, I wasn't in love with it. Um, but the ending is maybe the best movie ending I've seen all year. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess the last the last few I would recommend would be Strawberry Mansion, another awesome film festival selection from uh, Al Burney and Kentucker Oddly, and we're all going to the World's Fair. Yeah, that's getting HBO distribution like early next year. Early next year, yeah. That. That's that's an excellent picture, and I, I wasn't sure how to actually list it in my uh, top films of the year list. It's kind of hit on the lower end, but that doesn't mean that it's by any means less than. It's more like, I don't know how to categorize it. You know, it's right there next to Fried Berry and Malignant. You know, it's just, it's an uncategorizable movie for me. Like, I don't know really where to place it, but I know it's great. I definitely want to see it because I love creepy internet movies. Yeah, oh, this one's, oh, (laughs) this one, it's not just creepy, but it's also, it's just very good you know, as a movie, but there are, you know, just like you said, you know, things that you'll definitely like out of it. So, um, can I recommend one to you if you've not seen it yet? Yeah, go for it. I blame society. Have you checked that one out? Uh, I I think so. Let me, let me do a quick, what's, what's this one about? Uh, it's this filmmaker. Her name is escaping me off the top of my head, but she's playing a version of herself. Oh yes. Now I rented this on YouTube because, um, either I rented it or I got a copy of it uh, through the filmmaker. Uh, I'm not sure which, but it's, it's this wonderful, um, like she's making a movie about how she, where the premise is initially that she wants to kill someone or she imagines how she would do it, right? Yeah, it starts off as a um, 
documentary short that she made years ago um, where a real life person, like a friend of hers told her, you know, you would make a great serial killer. So she like interviews her friends and family asking them if she thinks she, if they think that she'd be a good serial killer and, and get away with out, it. And so she decides right. to shelve it for a while, but then she moves on with the next project, which is like a, yeah. a spinoff of that idea where she eventually actually murders people. <laughs> and, uh, and there's this great scene in the movie where she uh, goes to talk to some, uh, I guess, ex- young executives, and they're they're giving her that typical spiel like, "Oh, well, you know, you should make sure this movie has diversity, and then it has this and that. You know, this is really big now in, in overseas, and da 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 da. What's your branding? You know, crap like that." And uh, and she's just had enough. She's, <laughs> you know, she's like, "Whatever, I'm just gonna stab people now." Yeah, I thought that was a really good, like, biting satire about, like, DIY filmmaking and, like... It was really good, yeah. The current discourse about, like, strong female characters and how people don't actually mean that when they say it. Um, I, I think she has, like, a lot of, like, very good pointed anger about the film industry and, like, frustration about, like, what she's allowed to make as an artist. Um, and I, I, I was really floored by that film. That's the one I'm, like, most, you know, pushing. Because, like, other stuff I really liked was, like, Pig and... Titan and oh, that's the one I haven't seen yet. Titan, that one's available for rental for like three or four bucks right now. Yes, which yes. I, I think is well worth it. And I did just get the uh, I, I can't I, I hate pushing this, but I did just get an award screener for it. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I am going to be watching it because everyone says like you have to watch this. It's really crazy and great. And uh, I'm like, what does that mean? You know. Uh, that can mean anything, and I love that. I love how it can mean anything. It's like a, it's like a like a present on Christmas, you know. That it's in a box, but you don't really know. It could it could <laughs> technically be anything. You weigh it, you judge the the size and the shape, but really you don't know. There could be a trick, you know. They could have thrown you off with the weight or something. So, you know, I don't. You know, I, I want to. I'm going into it completely ignorant. You know. Well, I will say no more other than that one is sitting at my number one for the year oh, right now. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, the filmmaker, by the way, of I Believe Society, uh, Jillian Wallace Horvat. Yes. Or Gillian. She did an excellent um, interview on Switchblade Sisters earlier this year when that podcast was still going. Okay. Um, and that's how I found the movie. And I, I was really floored by it. Um, that's the one I'm like most pushing on people. Well, great. Yeah. So one more time, because you are a freelance critic, <laughs> uh, what is like the number one place you would direct people to find your work? Uh, well, I guess the number one place would be, it's kind of a link tree. You know, it's like a page with a bunch of links on it. Uh, it's called billreviews.bio, B-I-O, dot link. It's got um, links to my main newsletter, which is uh, movie going with Bill at billarsenault.com. There's... Um, uh, a couple of funding pages like buymeacoffee.com. There's uh, what else is on there? There's a couple archives, you know, like on medium.com, just places where I've put past articles. There's also links to my author pages at a couple different uh, previous outlets like uh, occupy.com, Big Easy Magazine. I think there's a film threat link. I'm not sure. But there's also a Rotten Tomatoes link. There's, there's, just links like crazy. So that would be the, the, the one place I would direct people to if you want to get an, an overview or the full bill experience, you know, so to speak. <laughs> um, or exactly to speak, actually. 
But uh, I would direct people, of course, to the newsletter, BillArsenault.com, just to, you know, and grab it. You can grab a free subscription. It's, you know, uh, I have a paid subscription option, but I I just enjoy people reading it and and telling me, you know, uh, their opinions on these movies and getting feedback on my writing, you know. Uh, that that to me is the biggest, uh, or some of the biggest uh, gratitude and uh, and reward out of all this. Money is also cool too, but <laughs> but that's not really why I do this. It, I mean, not completely. I do this because I love to do it. I don't know what else I would do really. I can make burgers okay. <laughs> I don't miss making burgers for money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I would yeah. really like to never do that again. <laughs> At the Avenue Pub. Oh, at two in the morning. Uh, oh, still though, you got you probably got a lot of good stories out of that, huh? Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, it was a convenient and entertaining way to put myself through college, but um, not something I miss in any way on a daily basis. Oh, I bet. You know, uh, smelling like uh, grease and beef every grease, night. Grease, yeah. Changing out the grease at like two a.m. and like somebody who's like blackout drunk arguing with you about whether why you won't make them French fries. Just be like, just go to Burger King. You are so drunk. It does not matter what food you were eating right now. Just get like, something yeah, just on your Let me stomach, clean yeah. this fryer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have a glass of water and a nap. You'll be fine. Um, anyway, <laughs> thank you again for your time. Uh, I, realizing now that we had so much fun talking that I took up twice as much as your, of your time as I promised. Oh, no, dude. This, 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 is, this is fun. I would love to be on the show more, actually. Well, um, I usually need a festival buddy to like recap festivals and often I have like gaps in my recording schedule. So I will hit you up again. I will take you up on that offer. Yeah, go for it, man. We'll, we'll make some time. Uh, absolutely. I, hell, you don't even have to make time with me. Just, I have available time. A lot, a lot of the, a lot of the time, <laughs> time, time, time. It's just all always around us. Awesome. Thank you for, um, gifting us that excess that you have. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll talk to you again. <laughs> I'm, I am rich in time. I don't know what we'll be talking about next week on the Swamp Flicks podcast, but um, tune in, and I'm sure we'll have something prestige award season, best of the year list making appropriate. Um, if not, I'm sure it'll be uh, some no budget regional horror <laughs> trash. Uh, nothing in between. We only do one or the other. Uh, so we'll talk to y'all then. Bye, everybody. All right. See you later, guys.